O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I imagine there are at least two reactions to the scripture lesson that Kelly read this morning. Uh, Whenever the scripture lesson mentions hell, people begin to get a little nervous. And so some of you might be thinking, oh no, a sermon on hell. While others may be thinking, finally, a sermon on hell. (laughs) Ricky never preaches on hell. Well, to both of those groups, let me say this. My aim in this morning's sermon is to disappoint both of you. Now, I'm certainly going to talk about hell, but not simply as an eternal destination for the wicked, but as a present possibility for those who dare to take up the name of Christ. Now, Before we dive into this passage, I want to remind you of a recurring theme that has been showing up in the Gospel of Mark over the past few chapters. Jesus has been trying to get his hard-headed disciples to understand what it means to follow him. And so we see this theme repeated over and over. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus calls the disciples to drop their nets and follow me. When he debated the Pharisees, he called the crowd to follow me. When he rebuked Peter's unfaithfulness, he told Peter, get behind me. When he defined discipleship, Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It seems that Mark wants us to understand that the object of our loyalty and devotion is Jesus, who calls all of his disciples to follow me. Now, in the verses immediately before our morning scripture reading, this point is driven home. If you remember last week, we talked about this. The disciples are arguing with one another of which one of them is the best and the greatest disciple. And then Jesus takes a little child into his arms and says, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not just me, but the one who sent me. I mean, the word me appears four times in that one verse alone. But then, as if on cue, the disciples don't get it. And in the very next verse, which began our reading this morning, it says... John, one of the disciples, said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now, I feel bad that John gets singled out because apparently he had gotten voted to go tell Jesus this. Because, you know, all the disciples were thinking the same thing. And, And like little theological tattletales, they're going to Jesus to complain. There's someone healing in your name, but he's not one of us. We didn't authorize him. He hasn't paid the dues. He hasn't come to any of the meetings. He's not wearing the right uniform. We're supposed to be doing this, Jesus. 
We're your inner elite circle. We're supposed to be the ones who are good at this. We're the ones who decide who gets to be a disciple or not. Now, can you hear the, the jealousy in their complaint? Or maybe envy? That there's someone who could do something that they were struggling with? Because we often forget the disciples do not have a perfect track record when it comes to healing in Jesus' name. In fact, just nine verses earlier, they are unable to heal a young boy who's possessed with a demon, and the boy ends up dying. Jesus comes, casts out the demon, raises the boy from the dead, and the disciples are embarrassed that they couldn't do it. And then wouldn't you know it, a short time later, there's this someone out there who seems to be able to heal when they can't. And if they can't do it, surely he shouldn't be able to because he's not following us. But of course, perhaps that's precisely why he is so successful. He doesn't spend all of his time debating with the other disciples about who's the best, who's the greatest, who's closest to Jesus, who's theologically most astute, whose worship is the best, whose preaching is most influential. This someone is just out there healing people in Jesus' name while the disciples bicker among themselves. Poor disciples. Of course, I'm glad that us modern Christians have gotten over all that stuff. Now, Jesus responds in verse 39. He says, don't stop him. For no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. So Jesus' command is simple. Don't stop him. And then, like a good preacher, he gives three reasons. First, he says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Look, if he is using my name, it'll catch up to him sooner or later. Either he'll be shown as a true follower or fraud. You see, there's power in the name of Jesus, and you can't handle his name for very long without its power having an effect on you. So Jesus says, don't worry about him. Second, Jesus seems to say, if this guy is indeed healing people in my name, then he's not our enemy. If he's not actively working against us, then he's actually working for us. Now, most of us behave as if the opposite is true, right? If you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not on my team, you must be my opponent. But Jesus seems to be offering a wider vision of who's counted as on our side. He may not go to our club, he may not be at our meetings, disciples, but look, if he is not actively out there complaining and actively working against us, then he is on our side. And third, Jesus says, and look, any act of hospitality, even as simple as offering a cup of water to drink, it can honor the name of Christ. 
Jesus seems to be saying, people in this world are thirsty. Thirsty for healing, thirsty for wholeness, thirsty for hope. And if someone is out there somewhere offering in my name, then why are you so bent out of shape? Now, as we keep going, it seems that Jesus has a little bit more to say to these disciples. In fact, they've struck a nerve. After nine chapters of not getting it, Jesus is about done. And he says, look, if any of you disciples put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if someone hung a millstone around your neck and threw you into the sea. Now that's a very vivid image. Jesus is admonishing the disciples to not go back out there and to speak ill of that someone. If he's out there working in my name, then if you go and make a public challenge to him, all you're doing is throwing down a stumbling block. I love the word stumbling block in Greek. I know all of you get excited when we do a little Greek lesson. It's not that long. But the word is actually scandalizo. Stumbling block is scandalizo. And it's the word that gives us the English word scandal. Jesus seems to warn against causing this scandal that would stand in the way of others coming to faith in him. And so Jesus warns the disciples about letting this guy go and do the good work he's been doing and to not challenge him. And if they think they need to, he seems to say, guys, it would be better if someone threw you into the lake than to go do this. And if you think Jesus is being overly dramatic, wait till he really gets going. Because in the very next verse, he says, look, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to, li to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. And I've never noticed that cross-stitched on someone's wall at their house. It's no one's favorite passage. Cut off my hand, cut off my foot, pluck out my eye, or I'll go to hell? Now, it's important to realize that Jesus is doing a little bit of classic rabbinic hyperbole. Like a good rabbi, he's being dramatic and perhaps a bit exaggerating the point. But, but hear me when I say this. I don't think he's exaggerating by making it up. He's serious. But he's using this exaggerated image so that we'll take it as seriously as he is. Jesus is serious about sin, and he's serious about the consequences of sin, and he is serious about what could happen to those who don't take those consequences seriously. But it's important to keep in mind what he's talking about. 
Because oftentimes this little passage is picked up out of its context and made to apply to any sin everywhere. But remember, Jesus is talking. He's been challenged by his disciples about this other guy healing in his name. Jesus is talking about the sin of competing with other believers. The sin of assuming that we have all the truth and no one else can. The sin of thinking people should follow us rather than that other preacher. And Jesus wants us to understand that when we get into the pattern of competing with other sisters and brothers in Christ, then we are doing something dangerous. And he seems to say, if you find yourself in the situation in which you are beginning to think bad or think ill or being envious or jealous or angry at other Christians, if you find yourself in that situation it's better to remove yourself. If you can't play nice with others, it's better for you to sit it out rather than to cause a scandal. If we can't stand it when others get credit for the work they do in Jesus' name, then we might need to readjust our vision. And, and stay with me on this, because this may get a little, little too deep for this early on a Sunday morning, but stay with me. Did you notice which body parts Jesus recommends you amputate? A hand, a foot, or an eye? These three body parts are the most essential tools for an agrarian society. You need feet to walk the path, a hand to throw the seed, and an eye to watch where it lands. When the harvest comes, you need an eye to see when it is ripe, feet to carry you through the fields, and a hand to gather in the sheaves. And when you know it, just a few chapters earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus had described spreading the gospel in exactly that way, as a farmer sowing seeds in the field. Maybe Jesus is saying, if there are those among you in the body who can't accept that there are other workers in the field, we'd rather you not get in the way. We'd rather limp along without you than to walk boldly into hell. Now look, I know this is harsh stuff, right? But what if I told you when Jesus is talking about hell, he's still using that rabbinic hyperbole, that exaggeration. Now, stay with me, because I don't want you walking away saying, Ricky told you Jesus really wasn't talking about hell. What I think Jesus wants us to hear is something more vivid. Because the word he uses gets translated into English as hell, but he actually used the word Gehenna. G-E-H-H-N-A. Gehenna. You're going to be so smart when you leave today. Scandalizo, Gehenna. 
all this stuff. But he uses the word Gehenna, and it's an actual place in Jerusalem. It's a valley outside the walls of the old city. And in that valley, the people had begun to set up their own little town dump. And so all of the trash and refuse of the city was taken out beyond the wall and dumped into Gehenna Valley. And so you can imagine that after decades had gone by, this is not exactly a pleasant place to hang out, where it would attract all the vermin and all of the other things that show up in town dumps. And like good town dumps from time to time, or if you live in the country, how do you get rid of trash? You burn it. And so this place was often a smoldering trash heap. It was not a place that was very pleasant to spend any time. And Jesus uses this word, I think, intentionally. And he seems to be saying, look, if you can't give up your self-righteousness and self-centeredness, if you can't give up your competitiveness with others, And in the end, if you can't accept that this is really about letting go and following me, then you might look up one day and find that you've wandered outside the city and you've stumbled into the trash heap where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. You see, I think we've been convinced that hell is something beyond this life that we don't really need to worry about until we get there, or hopefully don't get there. But I think that we miss Jesus' teaching that we can experience that same hell in this life. We can be so embittered to others, so wrapped up in our own definitions of who's wrong and who's right, so angry about that someone out there who's not doing the thing that you would do the way that you would do it. And we don't even realize that we're walking alone, truly having separated ourselves from God and God's people. And that is the very definition of hell, being alone separated from God and from God's people. So what are we to do? What is our response? Well, Jesus says in 49 and verse 50, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see, salt is a preservative and a flavor enhancer, right? And at our best, the church, the followers of Jesus, we disciples, can be the same thing. Preserving what is good and true about God and His message and enhancing with the beauty and truth of God's Word. But if we separate ourselves out, we diminish ourselves. If if we separate into who's in and who's out, we lose 
our saltiness. So instead, Jesus tells the disciples, be at peace with one another. Be at peace. And I think that's the greatest challenge of the church in every age. Simply being at peace with ourselves and with our fellow sisters and brothers in Christ. Because the truth is, there's always going to be someone out there who does it differently, or who does it better, or who doesn't follow us, who doesn't worship like us or sing the hymns that we do. Perhaps there'll be those on other communities of faith who speak different languages, worship in different places, maybe even some who speak in tongues or like good Christian folks simply nod when the Spirit moves them. And if we are tempted to begin to judge and to separate and to create divisions, I think Jesus, Jesus is disappointed. And so his command is simple. If you know someone out there healing in Jesus' name or bringing hope to the hurting and broken in this world, if there is anyone pushing back the darkness and pointing people to the light of God in Jesus, then the command is simple. Don't stop them. My prayer is that we will find ways to live at peace. And when we are tempted to judge others for doing things a bit differently, we will remember we will agree, we will follow this command of Jesus. Don't stop them. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we come to you this morning grateful that you call us to gather and worship in your name. We recognize, Lord, that we have a tendency from time to time to envy others, to be jealous of others, to be suspect of others. And Lord, when we find ourselves with those feelings, we pray that your Spirit would move among us, helping us to remember what you taught your disciples, that whoever serves in your name should not be hindered. We pray that we would move from this place to offer hospitality and hope and healing throughout the world. Whether that's a cool cup of lemonade on a Thursday evening, whether that's a meal packed on a Wednesday night or a shoebox offered on a Sunday morning. That as we offer hospitality around the world, we might fulfill your command. And Lord, when we see others doing things in your name, even if they are very different from us, 
We pray that our jealousy or our disappointment would be replaced with gratitude and joy. Oh Lord, we are grateful to be called your children. Grateful for the great gift of Jesus who comes to us across every barrier of language, of nationality, of ethnicity and race who gathers us in and who teaches us how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever.